Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required, no minimum purchase required. See store for details. Hello, everyone. Hello, podcast world, internet. I don't know, whatever. People listening to this. People with some time on their hands, basically. I'm Andy Richter, and this is The Three Questions. Uh, For those of you who don't know, uh, those three questions are, where do you come from? Where are you going? And what have you learned? And today, I get to ask them of one of the funniest people I know, and just an all-around Sweetheart, Joel Kim Booster. Oh, my God. Hi. Hello, Andy. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. 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 I um, famously walked in uh, a few minutes late. Right, right, sure. Iced coffee in hand. Right, right. Which is... Uh, an additional slap in the right. face. Right. Well, yeah, I to, know. To be, but you, and you let to your, as late. you walk through the room, you let your cape fall yeah. off, which is very dramatic. <laughs> it really tells a story when you do that. Though, sure. It's sure. like, you really, well, and you, I will say, it wasn't the iced coffee that made me late. I, I don't, I'm not worried about it. It was the breakfast sandwich that I ordered as well. <laughs> well, you should, have been, yeah. <laughs> you should <laughs> have been eating that. You should have been eating that. Yeah, that would be good. Uh, uh, yeah, that, that would be uh, all, all manner of things, like holding dry, cleaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, drinking a Usually, coffee. Usually, I, sub. I am so anal about being late. I is the my least favorite thing in the world yeah. being late. I usually walk in drenched in sweat. Yeah, yeah. Ap- if, apologizing profusely, um, but I don't respect you. Uh, so. <laughs> Blame you. I'm kidding. I don't no, blame you. this podcast hasn't been on the air yet, so you don't know yeah, whether you should I, or not. Yeah, I had no idea. I will say, I when I was in theater school, they would lock the doors when the um when it if your class was at nine oh, at night, right, right. it would turn eight fifty nine to nine. They would lock. The doors. I had some teachers. You like wouldn't that. be allowed, but it in. wasn't. It wasn't there. I only took. I only really took one theater class, and that was at the University of Illinois. And then, and I decided, I don't. What this is silly. <laughs> what is this? Were you just rolling around on the ground? Yeah, sort of just all noises? that kind of like be a tree kind of bullshit. Yeah. It's like, what does this have to do? That's with? unfortunate. If that's like the the first and only class yeah. you took, because I took a lot of those classes too, and I hated those yeah. classes. But I was also taking a lot of other classes. That I do think, uh, and don't get me wrong, theater school, let me be the first to say it, waste of money, don't do it. Uh-huh. Uh, absolutely, if you are a teenager listening to this, thinking about it, do not do go. Not go. Do I so think that's, that... You're already tackling what you've learned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't yeah. go. Don't take out a single student loan unless you get a full ride scholarship to Yale University. Yes. Don't go. But do I think it, it shaped a lot of like who I am in terms of like... A lot of the, the, I do use a lot of things I learned, but a lot of it is stuff that is not stuff that was taught in classes. Sure. It was just sort of like being at theater school, like Uh, being on time. College, college is learning. 
I really felt like, because I went two years to University of Illinois, just liberal arts and science. Well, I went, I was down the road from, I was like a 45 minutes away. Where, where'd you go? Millican University. Oh, I know Millican, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, where's that, Rock Island? It's Decatur. Decatur, Illinois. right, right. The oh, soybean Decatur. capital of America. Right. No, I know Decatur. Yeah. That was because when I started out at U of I, because I was such a brave soul, I asked our guidance counselor in our high school, when I told him, I, I said, I think I want to be a writer. He went, oh, so journalism. And I was like, no, not really. I don't care about journalism. <laughs> I was like, I, you know, like maybe, you know, short stories. Are, I said, maybe even writing for, I even at that time was like for TV or for mm-hmm. movies. And he's like, go to journalism school. You can do all that other <sighs> stuff in your spare time. And, you know, brave soul that I was, I was like, okay. Yeah. So I went to U of I and the, in order to get into the, College of Communications, you just took liberal arts Mm -hmm. for the first two years. And so that's what I did. I just took liberal arts classes. And then I had a meeting the beginning of my sophomore year with the dean of the College of Communications to just sort of get the whole program going because you had to maintain a pretty high grade average, too, which I was doing. And I told her what I wanted to do. And she's like, oh, you shouldn't be at this school. (gasps) And I was like, you mean I should be like in the College of Fine Arts? And she goes, no, no, you shouldn't be at U of I. <laughs> she was like, you should go to a different college. Wow. And I, hadn't, I hadn't considered it at all. But like, it was like she smacked me with a bat. I was in a daze. But two steps out of her office, I was like, she's right. There's Where no- did you go? I went to Columbia College in oh, Chicago wow. for film school. I mean, I, I couldn't afford to go to either coast to the big yeah, film yeah, schools. Yeah. But that was fine. But it was the same thing when I got to Columbia. I didn't learn anything except for like who I was, how I, how many drugs I could take, how much <laughs> drinking I could yeah. do, you know, that I better chill out about being so serious about relationships or I was never going to get laid. Uh, that was one big thing. But the, the reason I tr- that triggered me talking more than you is, uh, <laughs> is when you said Decatur, because that was one of the things that she said to me. She goes like, she said, if you become, she goes, we teach you how to be a reporter. And she goes like, do you want to go to Decatur and, and <laughs> report on grain elevator fires? Oh, God. And I was like. It's so dark. I, lo- I know. I, I love that. Like, she's the one that's supposed to be encouraging kids to yeah. be journalists. I but like, I guess when you're at a school like U of I, you do sort of, you're not like desperate for students. So no. you can be a little bit more real about right. it. I, I think like my school, and I loved my school, but they were very much like, nope, this is the only place for you no matter what. Like right. a lot of conservatories, because the BFA program at my school, you had to like re-audition or you get put on probation for either acting, singing, or dancing. I didn't do any of this. And they... What do you mean put did, on probation? So like at the like end of the, your freshman year... That's a base level? Yeah, so you had... It sounds so you had to punitive. Do her, they were called hurdles at the end of your freshman oh year. Oh my God. And you had an acting hurdle. Uh, if you were a musical theater major, you had an acting hurdle, singing hurdle, and a dancing How theater hurdle. is I know, that? I know. A hurdle. Yeah. And so you and and everyone had to do it. And then if you you would either pass all three or you would get um, put on probation for sometimes all three, sometimes just one or two, uh, or you would get redirected, which means and most at most conservatories, if you're redirected, it means you're out of the school. Wow. You have to go somewhere else. At our school, we had a BA program in theater as well, and that was that would sort of be where you would I go. See, and they always and the thing is, is I went in. I never auditioned for the school because I had a very like weird. Millican was the only school I applied to because why? It was, That's because I was going to ask that. Why it was, Millican? Um, a the only school that didn't have an application fee at the time, and I was oh, very poor. I see. And it was one of the only schools that I applied to that it was one of the first schools that like I was aware of that you could apply online. 
Like oh, just wow. to fill in. I remember filling out the application at the public library. What year is town. this, you child? 2006. Oh. Um, 2005, probably, when I applied. I already had um, gray pews by then. <laughs> but yeah, and so I just ended up there, and I like thought I wanted to like audition to be in the BFA program then. But everyone, because everyone was sort of like, the BA program is sort of for like, the rejects and the like, the kids who got redirected out of the yeah, who yeah. weren't good enough to get the, the BFA program. Yeah. But and they and the, all the teachers were sort of like, no, like the BFA program is for like kids who are like ready to go, and the BA program is more for like if you have more diverse interests, if like your path isn't sort of like go directly to New York beyond Broadway, yeah, like you should do this because you can sort of spread your wings and do a lot more things. And that's what I ended up doing. I ended up getting like a double major in English and doing a lot of. I worked for the school newspaper. Oh, and I cool. like did a lot of other things and also was very good. So I was allowed to be in all the classes. Absolutely. And, but you were the toast of Decatur. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't remember why we got into this. Oh yeah. That's why it was because every, they, the reason they didn't just send the BFA kids away who got redirected was because they needed they wanted them to keep them in, to, keep like, them in town. They needed yeah, to yeah. keep them in town. Most of them, if you did get, I, and Oh, this is the, the best part is at the end of the year, right before the last day, before everyone leaves campus, they put letters on a board in the theater offices for you to go and look and see if you passed your hurdles, were put on probation, or were redirected. And it was just like, they would go up at like midnight. Oh my when God. When we're all fucking wasted. Drama. When we're all wasted. Drama. I remember my uh, my future roommate, Lauren Culver, um, like literally like across the lawn in front of the theater offices, collapsing as she read her letter because she was redirected from musical theater to the BFA and acting, which was like, oh. and it was like an alleged, it was such a, like at the moment we were all, and we all crowded around her and like yeah, hugged yeah, and yeah. she was sobbing and it's like the stakes seemed so high back yeah, then. Yeah. And now looking back, we talk about it and we're just like, what a ridiculous moment. And also too, if there's any Millican, faculty listening to this that's just outright mind fuckery that's just exploitative mind fuckery by people who are indicator and probably don't want to be indicator you know what i mean there are professors i just actually went back this last october and and visited and performed for homecoming and there are professors that i had there that know that are like very much like enough separated from it that they're like some of this is bullshit and then there are people who have been there for so long they're so in deep entrenched in their bullshit that it is like crazy like that they treat it this way because it doesn't need to be that no it doesn't to to put them up at midnight it's humiliating and like the whole the, the theater of like finding out all of this stuff in itself is so interesting and there there are directors and like professors there that like are just using the they're not they're using the school in a way that is like not helpful to the students. Like, I, there was a production of like Urinetown the musical my mm-hmm. senior year, and this one of the famously most psychotic like theater teachers I had at school. Instead of doing a regular show, everyone wore black, everyone wore a mask, and no one was cast in any one part. Everyone had to learn every part, and then at certain points in the performance, you would sort of be like an improv exercise where you would like in the middle of a song sort of like throw the ball to someone else. And the, and so no one played a distinct part. It was insane. This And this is in front of audience. And this was, yeah, this was like this wasn't a main, just like stage, a classroom a main stage production. Wow. It was crazy. I, my freshman that, year. That's so, that's ridiculous. That would be like, 
you're going to do. It was you know, totally you're gonna masturbatory do, for this. Whose professor. life is this anyway? But everyone has to carry a bucket of hot coals. Yeah. You're like there's, you know, you'll, you'll never do this in a professional setting. No, never. but do it now because I'm sad and lonely yeah, and, 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 yeah, and mad. Yeah. yeah, there was also a production of Carousel that took place in a can- concentration camp. Oh, uh, my sure. freshman year. Fine. Um, all women, and it, this is actually okay. And I'm not. I don't want to defend this too much because, of course, now it is like 2006, different time. Yes. Wildly. But this is a real thing that the Nazis would make people do in concentration camps, which is put on shows for the Red Cross to like prove that they were being treated well. Right. Which is psycho. Mm -hmm. And so this director's idea, it was an all cast of all women except for one guy and one someone was like pregnant this is where it gets a little dicey is because the ushers had to dress up as nazis um which now looking back is insane Bananas. insane that we all just like let this go yeah, yeah. and allowed this to happen but and and then like before the actual like carousel began because it was a play within a play basically mm-hmm. is what they were doing and like one girl came up and was like to the red cross thank you for coming and like and so you were watching like basically people in a concentration camp perform carousel and it was like really deeply fucked up wow and insane and like one girl was in like a pregnant belly and like got like and in the at the end of act 1 like broke and was like trying to like <laughs> feel like no you know and then it was dragged off stage and then is like replaced the character she's playing in the second act is repl- it was crazy wow. but also like no, it was crazy. It's, it's crazy, <laughs> it was but crazy. you know, it is. It is a good. It There's is more of a, a point story. of view there yeah, yeah. than the mask, the Urinetown mask. Yes, for right, sure. exactly. Sure, for sure. No, that does. There does seem to be like. I mean, it's not based. It's a not misguided attempt yes. at doing something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I understand. And, and not a Jew in sight in that direction, <laughs> by the way. I would like to not a not, not behind the 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 the, the performances are not on stage at all. Oh, not wow. a single one. Of wow. course. Well, well, yeah. Um, the, you know. I actually think that at, at theater school, though, was the first time I ever met a Jewish person. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Growing yeah, up I in didn't, the Midwest. I did not know. Well, when my mom remarried, I went to third and fourth grade in Aurora, Illinois. I grew up in Yorkville, Illinois, which is a little town. Yes. And then we lived in Aurora, Illinois for two years, which is a bigger town. And right next to where the town I grew up. Where, where you Plainfield. Grew? Oh, in Plainfield. Sure. Yeah, Plainfield, yeah. Julia, We're very yeah. close. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. But uh, there was one Jewish kid. And I, that was where I was first, like, introduced to Hanukkah mm-hmm. and really struck by, like, wait, the first day you just get a toothbrush? Yeah. <laughs> the next day you get yeah. socks? You know, it just seemed like a, a Was there a even a rip. synagogue by where we grew up? I don't remember there being I, a synagogue. There has to be one in Aurora, but I don't. It, I don't yeah. remember specifically. But then the only other Jew I knew until I went to college was my pediatrician. Wow. Uh, you know, Morton Schaffron, who died at a Cubs game. Oh, my And God. we actually ended up seeing, he was sitting behind home plate, and we saw paramedics. We were watching the game. We saw paramedics, and then later found out that was my pediatrician having a heart attack oh and dying. Oh, my God. At the Cubs game. You so. saw it all in the kiss cam. Yep, <laughs> and we didn't, we didn't know. Oh, it was all just in the background. It was like, oh, there, you know, and the announcer's like, oh, so there seems to be a health, uh, oh, some no. sort of health issue going on in the stands. But uh, I remember when I was really young, like four or five, we went to a Cubs game and someone had snuck a cat onto the field sure. and put a cat and, and like threw a cat out onto the field. Um, and I'll never forget it, that. It happens. People forget. do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and now, fantastic. And it, it seemed so insane to me back then. But then I lived 
in West Lakeview, um, right next to Wrigley. Yeah, and I yeah. was like, oh, I I know exactly the kind of person. Oh, absolutely. They're constantly, <laughs> they're constantly in there. They're in the bleachers every single game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm crazy. I actually worked at a Cold Stone in Yorkville, by the way. Oh, you did? Briefly. I was trained at the Cold Stone in Yorkville and then moved to the Cold Stone in Plainfield. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you know that town. I know, yeah. I know I know your life, Andy. Oh, no. Everywhere you came from, I've been. Um, <laughs> Although, uh, Yorkville now, from I mean, I'm substantially older than you. When I was there, we literally, uh, I think we had literally had three stoplights when I was a kid in town. And, uh, and what, like when the McDonald's opened, it was a big yeah. fucking deal. It was like, besides that, the only restaurant in town was... The Barley Fork, which was, you know, like the coffee shop downtown that my grandpa had lunch at every yeah. day. So, yeah, it's a it's a different town. now. I haven't been there in years, but uh, I drove through. Plainfield was pretty similar to that yeah, when yeah. I was growing up. Because we, like, I remember the McDonald's going and being sort of a big deal as well. Yeah. And then the only thing really we're known for is our high school got blown away by a tornado. That's right. I was, and that was during my childhood, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. I remember that because it was, I, you know, we th- that tornado was... Yeah, it was, it was our huge. tornado yeah, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. It put us on the map. Uh, yeah, that's right. And Melissa McCarthy. Too. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. And yeah. Jenny. Uh, and Jenny McCarthy. And Jenny, their cousins. Oh wow. Um, oh wow. Because yeah, Yorkville, we'll Yorkville has me and Dennis Hastert. Wow. And Speaker Plainfield- of the House, pedophile Dennis Hastert. Oh <laughs> yep. So um, I- Plainfield now has me and Melissa and uh, Jenny. Uh-huh. And Shea Coulee, who's a, a runner-up on RuPaul's Drag Race. Oh, yeah. Also, I know. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Also went to high school with me. Exciting. We were in a production of Little Shop of Horrors together. That's great. I was Seymour. <laughs> he was the, the plant. This Audrey, too. Incredible. That's fantastic. It's And it's a very camp group. Yeah. It's yeah, a very really camp is. group. All four of it. Yeah, really yeah. That's fantastic. Well, let's let's get back to your childhood. I mean, um, I mean, you've ta- I've heard you talk about this yeah. before, but you are an adopted child mm-hmm. and you were born in Korea. Mm-hmm. And how did your parents had did they have other kids? Yes. Yeah. My, they had two kids, two biological kids, my older brother and my older sister. And then, you know, it's so strange. So much of my childhood and the decisions that were made and things like that are so shrouded in mystery to me because we are a family that does not talk mm-hmm. about anything. Um, Very modern. And like I, I think like they always. My mom says she always wanted to adopt, which I believe, and. Um, it was very sort of in vogue in the evangelical community yeah. to be adopting babies from Asia or abroad or Africa at yeah, the time. I didn't know for sure, but like in thinking about talking to you, I made that assumption. Yeah. That, that, that was probably a cause and, yeah. and quite possibly still is, I, you know. It might be, yeah. I know it's To harder. save heathen babies, yeah. basically. You um, know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And um, I th- it's definitely, international adoption is harder and more expensive now than it was yeah. back in the 80s. I think I even, like, my first, one of my first jokes on Conan was about how Korea used to be, like, the main spot because you uh, up until, like, the early, mid-90s, it was the only foreign country you could that would fly the baby. To America, <laughs> and you didn't have to go right, back. like Postmates. Um, yeah, I like think the Grubhub is the, yeah, yeah. the analogy that I made on the show, <laughs> and um, so there was that. But also, here's the thing: um, my parents like. They didn't sleep in the same room the entire time I was growing up. Like, wow. I don't remember them ever, like, showing affection, hugging, kissing, anything. They were fighting a lot. And so part of me, I was always, like, growing up, like, oh, like, they wanted a third kid, but they just weren't fucking. So wow. <laughs> they needed to adopt. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now it's weird because I go home and they're back in the same room. They're, like, getting along really well. And so 
And it, again, it will be something that I will never, because I remember I used to try to address it as, like, my brother and my sister were very much like, let's just play along. Like, this is totally normal. Right, right. And I was like, this is weird. Why yeah. is no one talking about this? Because yeah. I was really, as a kid, very obsessed, because I was homeschooled too. Mm-hmm. Very obsessed with normalcy. All I wanted was like a quote unquote, like normal family, normal life, normal thing. And I think that came. And were there other kids in Plainfield that looked like you? Not a lot. No, not. I don't. I I was probably in like the eighth grade when I met another Asian kid that I was like friends with at my church. And it was so, I think like for me, I like being like gay and knowing that from a very young age and being in a religious house and then being Asian and being sort of like the only person of color that was like around, I like, it truly triggered in me. I was like, I just want to be normal. I yeah. want to feel normal. And I was watching so much like raised by television, truly. Yeah. And so like every TV family, I just wanted that. I wanted a locker at school. I wanted to come home and have like my parents be sleeping in the same room. Yeah. I wanted everything to just sort of be pristine and normal. And like, I'm so grateful that it wasn't in many ways now, but yeah, I think like that was one of the the big frustrations for me was I was like, why aren't we normal? And I would sort of like, I don't know if I ever said those words, but like I would constantly act out and sort of be like, why is, why are things like this? Yeah. And no one wanted to talk about it. Why do you think that you were that way as opposed to your brothers and sisters? Do you have any theories of that? I mean, um, I think part of it is, I don't know. Like for me, I think like they were fairly like satisfied. I mean, the, the thing is, is we had a great childhood. Mm-hmm. Like we were poor, but like I, and I've only sort of recently sort of realized how poor we actually were. Cause my dad was laid off for a little while. And I remember in those times, like I just actually had this memory recently. I was talking to my sister about this. My dad, one of the years that he was laid off, we, postponed Christmas. My mom was like, we're postponing Christmas. We're pushing it into January. Wow. And at at the time, like looking back, it was because they didn't have money for presents. But at the time I was like, what a fucking badass. I was like, (laughs) to have the, I was like, I didn't even know that was an option. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're so powerful. You can just move Christmas. Fuck you, Santa. I'm like, I was like homeschooled. So like, I didn't have like kids like it was just it, it didn't matter like time didn't matter yeah. like in a way because like I, I wasn't on like a, a school schedule in the same way so like truly time like looking back on it was so weird and strange because yeah. I, I wasn't in the nine month like summer is summer going back to school like sure. none, had none of that and so the Christmas thing wasn't weird because I didn't have any friends who were like that's weird that yeah, you're yeah. celebrating and Christmas you there's no Christmas break or anything <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no so. so that we weren't beholden to any of that yeah and and they just never made us those things they were we were so, we were fed we were clothed like uh, they might I remember like my 10th birthday I wanted a Nintendo 64 so bad and my mom was like we cannot afford it we cannot afford it we cannot afford it um, like truly like scream cry wanted it that's the only thing and it was like that was like one of the first times I realized we were poor is when my mom could said that like she truly couldn't do it and yeah, then yeah she talked to my brother and my sister. They forwent their birthday presents so that all three of us for oh my, my birthday got a Nintendo 64. Oh my and goodness. And so, and like, and that was like, that was the kind of shit that they did though. Yeah, were yeah. like, they were good parents, like in a, in the broad sort of yeah. like ways that you need a, a parent to be good like that. I mean, not not that like buying your kids shit is the thing yeah. that makes you a good parent, but like they cared enough about like, I don't know, it's weird. Well, like I, I'm, I'm very critical of my parents in a lot of ways because they were deeply conservative and like, you know, hard on me in, in those ways. Right. But like at the end of the day, we had a really good childhood. And I don't fault them for that. that, You know, the the notion of like buying your kids things is not, you know, doesn't mean love. Honestly, I'm a parent. 
To kids, it does. Yeah, you know that that they are they are very simple and they are transactional. And they don't know, because they're like almost like little kind of simple machines. Yeah. You know, it's like <laughs> they they are need based. And if you need a Nintendo sixty four and someone gives it to you, that's satisfying to you because you're not you don't think expansively as a child. Right. You think by about like what you need. But you must have felt very loved by that. That's kind of, you know. Yeah, no. And that's exactly, and I feel guilty. That's and like, I remember it's really, really sweet. It's a sweet story. When I was like 23 out of college, like basically from the years of 23 to like 28 or 29, I had no money and I was like very poor. And yeah. thinking about those moments in my life, like in hindsight, how painful it must have been for my mom to be like, we can't do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And like as a kid, you don't get the realities of money. You don't understand. Like Mm-mm. all your parents are just like an endless ATM. And right. Like, so you don't, you know, no matter how hard you try and teach your kids about it, you just, they don't get it. And wh- I remember like being like, I don't know, just like miserable in a studio apartment in Chicago and like thinking about how poor I was and thinking about my mom, like, like thinking about how miserable I was being poor as a single person in my 20s when you're supposed to be poor. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, right, right. Thinking about my mom, who was like roughly the same age as I, like only like maybe five or six years older than I was when I was like sitting in my apartment in Chicago being like adding the pressure of having, of having three, three kids children, yeah. who want things and who you want to give things to. Yeah. It just made me feel so bad and also like great about like my my parents. Yeah. Um, you know, because all the, all the negative stuff really came when I was like, a teenager. Right. And that's sort of normal. Um, and we've worked through that and we still have like issues and we, things sure. we don't talk about. I mean, that's the biggest thing is we just don't talk about yeah. anything. Um, and that's sad. Yeah. Because I was going to ask you, because I'm always as a parent and as a, you know, as a product, as a child of, through divorces and dysfunction, I was going to ask you about what, what do you think? Cause that's a tense household. People that parents yeah. that don't, where there's not an actual living marriage going on. That's a tense household. And I was going to ask you, what do you think the result of that kind of tension is? But then to hear also, too, that there was such love, you know, is really, do you think that those things kind of balanced out in a way that made it bearable or livable? or They did. And it was like, it was, I mean... To be fair to me as a kid, like it was, it was wild because we would take separate vacations with my dad, and then go on separate vacations with my mom. Wow! And like no, no one, explanation, no explanation for yeah. it. I remember when I was like nine, being like, "What, mom? Why don't you kiss dad?" Straight up, like bringing it out into the ether, and she's like, "I do." And I remember leaving to go on a separate vacation to see my grand, my dad's parents with my dad, without my mom, leaving in the driveway, and my mom being like, "Watch this." And like truly the most chaste kiss, peck on the lips. Yeah. And I was like, okay, but then the fact that you have to call attention to it, that's weird. That's even weirder than not doing it, actually. (laughs) And even at nine, I knew that. Yeah. I was like, this is bizarre. And like, yeah. And now I don't know. And so it was like, I, I, you know, I I don't know exactly how it's affected me psychologically because it's very low on my list of priorities to talk about in therapy because I've got a lot of other things. Sure. I'm sure but, you do. I mean, it's but obvious, it, but it's like, you know, I, I do wonder sometimes how that affects your sort of understanding of what an adult relationship yeah, should look like absolutely. and what love, and like what romantic love looks it, like. It's, it's a modeling that you, Probably can't even fathom no. how long it takes to sort of unwire Because that, I had know? two extremes going on when I was a kid. I had that, that coldness and that absence of affection and love. And then I had television that was raising me. And uh-huh. every model for what I thought a relationship should look like, I, I was getting from fucking Nora Ephron mm-hmm. and, you know, sitcoms. Yeah. 
Rachel and Ross, you know? And so it was just like, of course now as an adult, like I have these like screwy, like things that I have had to like detangle in my brain to be a functional like human. Right. Especially when it comes to relationships. I don't know. It's like wild. Were they funny? No, no no? no one in my house. So you're just sort of like, you just. I'm a full anomaly in a lot of ways. My sister is probably the closest. My sister was eight years older than me. Um, very maternal. Like I, my sister, I would have identified as my best friend until I was the age of like 12. Yeah. <laughs> um, she would like take me to movies and like, we would go, we would do stuff like one-on-one a lot growing up. Cause I think my sister is all, the only thing my sister has ever wanted to do. So smart, truly got a full ride to like North Central College in Naperville, dropped out cause all she wanted to do was be a mom. And it's great that she knew that about herself. Yeah. Like, and, and I don't, I don't think that's a, a lesser decision on her part. No, not at means. all. But like, she truly like, was playing mom with me like so much. Yeah. Was so maternal. Um, but she's the closest thing probably to me. Like she was the first person I saw. She was in school plays and stuff mm-hmm. like that, that we would go and see. And like, so she had like a little bit of the bug to like be on stage yeah. and like introduced me to a lot of movie musicals and stuff like that. And like, we had a lot of the same, a lot of my like interests, early interests were specifically because of my sister. And so we had that in common, but no one in my house is very outgoing mm-hmm. or has an interest in being around a ton of people. Mm-hmm. Like my sister had friends, but then was like much more, much happier spending time with our family mm-hmm. than like hanging out. Wow. Which is like so foreign to me. Yeah, yeah, Because <laughs> yeah. all I want to do is like be around people until I don't. So yeah, I was always the loudest. I was always like trying to make people laugh. I think like... Were they a good audience? Yeah, I mean... They, they liked, they, they knew they that, so you were rewarded were for yeah, being yeah, yeah. funny. My, yeah, my, my extended family, everybody thought I was like so funny. And it was usually because I was like saying something to like I had no I had like no filter and as like a young kid that's cute and then it starts to get frustrating and then you sort of have to like mold it into something else but I remember it being like I would just like say you know whatever was on my mind and people would laugh and that's basically what I've done for a career now so (laughs) it's basically coming on podcasts Um, but I was four so yeah and then like as a teenager it started to become like more of a defense mechanism my sense of humor you know Mm -hmm. because like when you're being teased and picked on it's like if you can deflect with comedy you either have to like hide I think like gay kids either like go further and further into the shell and just try to make themselves invisible and like I didn't want I couldn't do that I think because I was there was other things about me that made me too visible right and the other option I think for a lot of visibly gay kids is like oh just become the funny person in your class and like sort of become the clown and then it weirdly like takes the pressure off and stuff like that and I think that's why there's the stereotype that gay men are funnier Mm -hmm. um I think it's just because a lot of us had to be, you yeah, know, yeah. like very quick and witty sure. uh, in order to like, you know, deflect some of that attention. But yeah, I do. I, I just knew so many more that were like, let me just like hunch over and like be small and be and disappear and disappear. And then yeah. that way it'll be easier. You've said that you knew you were gay when you were four. Yeah. And now, I mean, that how, why? What, what about that? I mean. I just, Did you have an idea what gayness was? No, or? I had no idea. I remember the, the memory. The memory I have, and the memory that has, has been confirmed is like my brother and my sister and I on Friday nights they would let us all sleep in like the living room or sleep in my sister's room together as like a sleepover. Yeah, and I remember like at four we were sleeping in my sister's room because they had just put glow stars, glow and dark stars on her ceiling. Yeah, and. I just remember being like, I like looking at naked boys better than naked girls. And I remember my brother and my sister thinking it was the funniest fucking thing they had ever heard in their life. 
and see, it was you're like, already funny. Yeah, exactly. Your your entree into gayness is hilarious. It's, it is so funny when people are like on YouTube on my clips, like, oh, he's just getting up there and talking about being gay, and I'm like, yeah, it worked when I was four, and it's working now, bitch. Okay, <laughs> like, people are laughing. Yeah, but yeah, and that I didn't have like I just I always had crushes on like boys and men and like on television and in real life and stuff like that. Like I was always like, yeah. And I just remember that from the earliest memories that I have of like, and I, and then, and I was also like really sexual really early. Like I was jerking off at eight. Oh, wow. Um, So Really, Did anything young. come out? Very. I mean, li- I, I actually—we've turned blue here. But yeah, I mean, no, no, no. or medical. Because um, I remember this is the other thing. So I was jerking off before I really had come, and then I remember like a year in something like a little bit came out and I thought I peed obviously because I think we all do sure like, sure when that's happening and your parents sure and then, aren't telling you what's no going and no on. one's talking my dad had a book called how to talk to your kids about sex and I would take that off the bookshelf and read it and yeah. then truly never used no right, one right. it never had it co- coalesced into a conversation if you read the book he certainly didn't use any of that knowledge I mean um, that book was also <laughs> where I found out what it meant to be gay because yeah. there was like it was like a Christian book and then the last chapter was like 15 pages on homosexuality wow but yeah I remember that coming out and then I remember going turning to our encyclopedia britannica and looking and cross-referencing like penis everything i could find and then i i still remember the moment i read semen the word semen yeah. for the first time and i was like i'm a genius <laughs> i cracked the case like <laughs> that's what that is um yeah wow that's uh that's exciting. Eight years old. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah I remember yeah. like, I remember the the big ones were David Hasselhoff, Baywatch, mm-hmm. Scott Bakula, Quantum Leap. Oh, I, you have a type. Famously, famously in, in the Quantum Leap intro credits when he's like in the suit and in the blue smoke, iconic imagery. Right. Thought that's what a naked man's body looked like for ages. <laughs> Truly thought he was fully nude. Right. Ken doll style. <laughs> But it was hot. I was like into that. Right, yeah. Just the mystique it's, of that. It's much less threatening. And then the Ken other... doll is much <clears throat> less threatening. The other big thing I used to jerk off to was I have a collection of hundreds of Archie comics, double and single digest. Wow. And every little stri- like comic where they would go to the beach and like... Archie was like wearing speedos always, which I always found to be truly wild as a child. They're easier to draw. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, and they were also different eras too. And I didn't get that as a kid that they were like, they were like older versions of Archie, like sort of smushed in these double digests. And um, I would jerk off to like those pictures a lot of like Archie and Jughead and Reggie and speedos. My childhood was much more sex positive but in a and in like in geneva really no i I grew up in in yorkville Yorkville? yeah because well i think you know in retrospect i mean i don't want to take up too much time with this but my dad is gay that's why my parents divorced when i was four my dad came out or was found out or something like that so my mom's sister pat was sort of like my in many ways, like kind of like my inspiration to go into show business because she was funny and fun and like, you know, like the celebrity. Oh, we all have an aunt Pat. We all have an aunt Pat. She would come to town and that was like the highlight of the year when she would come visit. And she was wild. Like she was what in those days, she was early 60s. She was sort of a, a pioneer of the sexual revolution, which just means she was a slut. <laughs> that, was, that was what it was in those days. Um, but she married a bunch of times, all kinds of different jobs, but always just an emphasis on having fun and yeah. being funny. And I went to visit her 
and her husband, when I was, I, I, well, I, it was because it was like for my fifth or sixth birthday when I was young and they had playboys sitting out and I was fascinated by them. So she came to my birthday, having known that I liked playboy magazines and gave me a playboy for my birthday, which my mom, my mom, how old were you? Like five or six. What? I think it was five or six. And which, I mean, in some ways, I, in some ways, I think like it was a different time in that there, you know, the, the notion of like the objectification of women and, mm-hmm. and sort of the unrealistic portrayal of it. But in terms of like treating a child as a sexual creature who's like has a natural yeah, urge yeah. to look at naked people, that I don't have any problem with. And like with my kids, I think like my daughter, one of my daughter's favorite books was a table, a coffee table book that we got at an event of like, 50 years of Playboy. And it was all just like throughout history. And like she was fascinated with the bushes, like the, all the bush. Like, she's like <laughs> look at all that hair. What's that? You know, um, but she loved, you know, it's like kids like to look at naked yeah. people. So it's no big deal. But I, I was, I remember I was, she, she get, I was thrilled to have this magazine. And I remember looking, laying on the floor on my stomach, looking at it. And there was a, there was a like, uh, shots from an actual sort of playboy ski party and Hugh Hefner's there. And it's, you know, when it starts, it's, it's a ski party. And then it's, you know, it devolves into like nudity. And, and there was like one shot of a woman bottomless and w- you know, with, it was uh, Winnie the Pooh 72 or yeah. something. So there was, you know, there was pubic hair and I, that is indelibly etched into my brain forever. And I, uh, I yeah I took it I took the magazine over to my to my aunt and I said I said Pat you better I said Aunt Patty you better take this back and she said why I said because it makes my wiener hurt because I was laying on the floor and had an erection I was like and she's I could at the time I could see her sort of like giggling like okay honey and I was like and I I had to go even further and I was like and this one this picture especially like pointing at pointing at oh this snatch that God. one right there that's the one that really does it for him and she's like okay honey I'll take it back but in retrospect and I think it may have even been, been my wife years and years and years later when I told her this story said to me, it's obvious that your mom and her sister were trying to make sure that you were straight. Really? I really do think she's right. Wow. I really do think that they were trying to. I mean, I th- they were sex positive kind of, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. who cares kind of stuff about that anyway. I, I mean, because like we swore in our household and and we were the house that kids drank at. Right. You know, it was, and I mean, there was morality and we were taught to be nice and to be polite and to be kind. But, uh, you know, but it Which was is like, more important. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. But all that kind of edge stuff like, eh, who gives a shit, you know. But yeah, but so that I, I do think that she in, in, that that was an attempt to sort of imprint straightness on it. I don't think that's how that works. But no interest. <laughs> Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at tmobile.com/slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. 
saving money on protecting your garden. Now at Menards. Messina's Animal Stopper is a liquid repellent that prevents pesky animals from damaging your garden. Available in a convenient, ready-to-use bottle. It lasts for up to 30 days, regardless of weather and watering. Save big money on Messina's Animal Stopper at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals happening now. Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets, up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Hi, I'm John Lovett, host of Love It or Leave It. Every week, I'm joined live on stage by incredible guests to break down the biggest and dumbest stories in politics and pop culture. And now, because there's too much news for just one show, join me and my friends, also known as beloved producers who have to be there, every Tuesday for a rundown of the latest headlines to help get you through another flawless week in our perfect society. Listen to episodes of Love It or Leave It wherever you get your podcasts, or catch the funniest moments on the Love It or Leave It YouTube channel. Can't you tell my loves are growing? Now, when do you think that your parents started to become aware? I came out to my mom like three different times before they, like, before it all really blew up. I remember when I was really young, like, uh, like eight or nine, saying something. You know what was wild is we were watching one of those specials where it was like, look at all these crazy commercials from overseas. Look at what they get. Look at these fucking sexual commercials from overseas. Do you remember those like special compilations? Sure, of those? sure, yeah, yeah. And like some of them would just be like insane. And I remember being like telling my mom, "There's one from like Germany with a man in a speedo again, like a gymnast on a trampoline." Yeah, and I don't even remember what they were selling. Trampolines, <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> and being like. I like that. And then I remember being 13 and having a much more sort of like self-actualized, like very real conversation with her being like, I think I'm gay. And then truly not like, I, I think we both blacked out. <laughs> like, really? Cause no, it you was don't never, remember the response or anything. It was not, it was not negative. It wasn't like she, they didn't drag me to conversion therapy right away or anything. They, I mean, they did put me in therapy, Christian therapy. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure she told him cause I, he tried to like, get me to talk about different stuff that was like, and he was bad. He was like, not good at all. Um, so it wasn't specifically conversion, but it was still, no, it, was it was sort a of Christian conversion light. Sort of, Cause I had so many emotions. Like I was so deeply repressed. Like no one was talking about anything. I didn't feel like I could talk to my parents about anything. I was so, I would have like emotional outbursts. I have like chemical stuff going on too that I'm sure, sure. was like manifesting at a young age. And then it really came to a head when I was like 17 Senior in high school, early days, senior of high school, and they read my journal. And Ugh. yeah, fuck and it was, you, parents. It was, Joel's parents don't read his journal. It was dark because, like, there was just like at that point, I had been out at school for like a year and had like been because they sent me to they were homeschooled me until my junior year, and then I went to public school, and then uh, within a month, I had smoked weed, drank, and come out of the closet. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was like and how did that go over in Decatur? Because I'm always curious about um, that. Because in I, Plainfield, um, or in, Pla- in Plainfield, I'm sorry, coming out. Yeah. Um, at that time. Fine. Oh, okay, I did. I did not have a lot of like 
serious pushback, except at ch- I didn't even come out of church. Someone re- read like on my blog that I was hanging out with a gay kid and the youth leaders, because I think they could smell blood in the water about yeah, who I sure. was, was like, we don't think you should hang out with this person and you can't come back to church unless you stop hanging out with him. And I was like, okay, bye. Bye, yeah, sure. Because um, I think I was ready at that point too. Yeah. And sort of. That's good to hear though about Plainfield because my, my son who's 18 is gay and has been out since he was 11. And I always wonder, like, because it was, you know, his school, the Gay Straight Alliance is the yeah. biggest organization right. at his school. And I wonder what it's like other places other than Los Angeles. I had to, I started the Gay Straight Alliance at my school right before I left. And well, there, was a, la la. there was a little bit of pushback about it, but not a ton. Yeah. And then. How did you know about it? Had you just read about it online or something? Yeah. I, yeah, th- yeah. I knew that they had existed. And yeah. like, I had had boyfriends who at their school, they had them and stuff like that. And so like, I was sort of aping that. But yeah, I, I, I actually had a pretty like decent time. I remember I got called a faggot like more when I was like, on youth group trips yeah. than like by like quote unquote Christian people. Yeah, of course. Um, than I did at public school. Sure. Except <laughs> there, it was so funny. I tweeted and it was like half a joke about a year ago and half real. I was like, does anyone remember the last name of the girl, Heather, who called me a faggot at lunch uh, junior year during 3B lunch? And truly many people responded with her full name. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, so that was like the one thing. Did you look her up? Um, I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, truly, I'll like look her, any enemy I had in high school, I will look up only exclusively while I'm like zooming down the one-on-one. Like yeah. anytime I'm driving, I'm like, I have to look up someone from high school on Instagram right. now. Um, Cause that's how I want to die. Right. That's, um, a good, that's good though. You know. You yeah. Know. For some reason, that's the only time. But yeah, it was like, it was fine. It was weirdly like no, very, the only source of pushback I got was from my family and that was pretty much it. And like, I moved out after they read my journal. I had like a full mental break mm. um, because it was like a paradigm shift for both of us. You know, like I truly at that moment at 17 was like, I will never tell them I will go to college. I will leave. I will live a full life, second life that they will just never be privy to. Yeah. And because, I mean, that was just the way we did it in my house. We didn't talk about things. There were so many secrets, so many conversations. I was obsessed with all of the secrecy in my house, because people were always talking about things and never letting us in about any of it. And I was like, well, I guess that's just how it's going to be. Yeah. We're not going to talk about this. And so I had a full mental break. They sent me to a, an inpatient mental hospital for kids oh. um, for a week. I was there for a week, came back, moved out. And then, Was it uh, Christian? Or no, anything? it okay, was like, good. yeah, it was just like a normal one, yeah. which was actually probably better. Because sure. there was like a lot of like guys, because they sent me there because they were like, this kid is fucked up because he's gay. And then a lot of the people at that facility were like, well, that's not a part of this. Right, right. <laughs> that's not the issue. That's yeah, not the yeah. issue. Because I, I remember when they sent me, they made them test me for AIDS twice, oh. HIV twice, because I had talked about like giving blowjobs and stuff like that in my journal. And I was like, it was insane. And they thought it was insane. I remember really clearly that everyone at the facility, like all of my counselors and stuff were like, you're parents seem a little nuts that, too. Was that helpful? And that was helpful because yeah. it did it's sort of like, oh, okay, I'm not insane about this. Like yeah. there's a lot of other stuff going on. And so I moved out and there was like one girl in one class that I had who was like, everyone knew cause I disappeared for a week from school and I was the voice of the announcements, not to brag. And oh. so everyone knew that I was gone Right. and everyone would call my house and my parents would be like, we don't know when he's coming back. 
And so like what a mystery to present to oh. this high school, this like high school of kids. And so everyone was like, when I finally did show back up, they're like, where the fuck were you? Yeah. What was going on? And so everyone was really aware. And so this one girl, just to be nice, offered me a place on her couch. And then I showed up like last on my list. I had sort of exhausted all of my other couch options at this point. And she, her parents were like, you can't just invite kids to stay in her house. You don't right, know this person right. really well. And then long story short, I ended up staying there the rest of the year. Wow. She's my best friend in the entire world to this day. Best man in her wedding. Flew and back. That, that was nice of her. And you get along with her parents, obviously. Yeah. And, and wildly, her dad is Methodist pastor in my town. Oh, wow. Um, and, and this Not is... Not that wild, though. You know what I mean? No, they're... Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The Methodists know. tend to be... Some, um, some Christians actually do it right, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he... It was really actually the best situation I could have landed in because even after being out for a couple of years, I was like, I'm, I'm going to hell. Yeah. You know, like I was like, well, I'm going to hell, but I might as well just like live it up. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it wasn't even like, a even though I was out, it wasn't necessarily the healthiest headspace. And I remember her parents sort of like catching wind of that because I think I probably told Sarah that at some point. And her dad was like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. And yeah. it really was like to have someone who was like in authority in a church yeah. Be like, hell doesn't exist. That's not how this works. That's not how God works. That's not how blah, blah, blah. Really was like, oh my God, like this weight lifting yeah. off of yeah, me. Yeah. And also it was just like nice to have, again, like that normalcy that I was seeking. It was so interesting because it was like not a normal situation by any means. She had like, it was a full family. Her dad's a paraplegic. Like she had two younger wow. brothers. Like there's a lot going on in that house. And then I was there. None of this is normal. And yet it was the all of the normal, it was the most normal year of my life. And yeah, as a, the as lack a, of tension of people. Yeah, because I could living, come home and yeah. talk about boys with yeah, her mom. Yeah. And her mom was like interested in that. You know, it was just like, I was just able to live, because I was living a, a full double life for a year. Yeah. And for most of my life, honestly. And then just to be able to like, kind of be at home and be myself and then be at school and be myself. You know, it was really, really, it saved my life in yeah, a lot of ways. And now fantastic. she's a pastor too. Oh, and wow. Yeah. Well, that's, that's great. Yeah. I mean, that's a nice, that's nice too, that you at least get some healthy Christians yeah. in your life. You yeah, know? yeah. 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 Now, how do you, uh, how do you end up in stand up? How, do, how does that? Um, I was in, I moved, I went to theater school. I moved to Chicago because I wanted to do theater. I wanted yeah. to write plays. I wanted to act. I wanted to be involved in the. Steppenwolf. Like, yes. That, yes. I mean, that was the goal for yeah, me for yeah. a long, long time was like, that's what I wanted. Like that, like varies. Cause at some point midway through college, I like went in being like Broadway musicals. And then like midway through, I was like, no theater. Like plays, right? Tom Stopper, serious things. Yeah, like yeah. Tracy Letts. Like, yeah. let's do this, Shakespeare. Um, and so I moved, and Chicago seemed like the place to do that story. Amazing theater scene to this yeah. day. I miss it. And I, yeah, I started doing theater there. I was doing theater for uh, like a year there, and I was uh, ensemble member at this theater called the New Colony, and they were putting on a play that I was helping. I was a writing assistant on called um, Five Lesbians Eating a Quiche. <laughs> um, and it starred at the time Beth Stelling, who oh, is wow. a, you know, very great a, a stand-up. Fantastic stand-up, yeah. A successful comic who's been on this show, or Conan, a, a bunch. And I remember, like, just having a conversation with her, because at a certain point I had, like, hit a wall with auditioning, where I was like, all of these, like, the bigger the paycheck got for these roles, the less interesting the Asian role would be. Mm. Or like, I would only, I was only getting called in for parts that were like exclusively like written to be Asian. And it yeah, was like yeah. very frustrating. She it's was like, very fru- well, yeah. you're writing, you know, she's like, you're a writer and you're a performer. She's like, just do stand up. And I, and Beth was like one of the first like stand ups that I had seen 
um, live. Like yeah. I went and saw one of her, like she had a bar show called Entertaining Julia with the Putterboss sisters and I went and saw that. And then on Friday nights after Five Nights at Zena, Acacia Theater would put on a variety show with like improv and sketch and stand up and stuff like that. And one night someone dropped out and they're like, Joel, do you want to do something? And I was like, sure. And they gave me like eight minutes to do whatever I wanted. And I was like, I guess I'll do stand up. And I did it. That was the first time I ever did it. Mm-hmm. Crushed. Nice. Uh, and then bombed for like a full year. Yeah, afterwards. yeah. I think that's, I think that's but, a fairly common. Yeah. And yeah. Um, how, it, how long did you have to, to get material? Um, a couple of days. Okay, that's good. Yeah. I never believe these people that say like, buddies dared me at an open mic and no. I just went up and started. I just feel like, no, you didn't. No, you no, You didn't no. just wing it for, you know, 10 I was, minutes. Yeah, I was, I remember like being on the train, like writing down like, little bits and stuff like that. But here's the thing. Like I did, I did stand up so poorly in Chicago as just like an art form. Cause I thought you do a set and then you don't do those jokes ever again. Uh, and then you write a full new eight minutes yeah, yeah. every single time. And that I like that ambition though. I, I mean. know. And listen, like I had a lot of material, most of it very bad for yeah, many, many sure. years. It was like, I was like pushing myself to write a ton of material yeah, yeah. in those first couple of Your years. Your entire early career was one long improv. Yeah, show, basically. basically. Yeah. But yeah, you gotta, you gotta sit through the kind of not so good stuff to get to the good I stuff. I still, I still do that. I still like try so much bad shit and then like find a good, I like, I, Cause I don't write anything down. I never mm. have. I've oh, never, wow. I've never written. You carry a joke. your whole act in your head. My set lists are just words like, uh-huh. um, like pony, uh, yeah, yeah. like Grubhub. Like I will write those words down and that will cue me in, but I write mostly on stage. And so I'll just be doing like sort of forming and New York tightened me up a lot. Cause in Chicago it was very loose and very like stories and like meandering and a lot of that. And New York, when I moved to New York and I was doing like three open mics a night where you're waiting two hours to do a minute and a half. Sure. 90 seconds of material. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you can't. And, you got to get to the punchline, and you have to absolutely. do it fast. And you're sitting through so many tedious yeah. people, too, which is just, I, yeah. I felt this about theater, and I felt this, uh, I feel this even more so about stand-up. Watching bad stand-up sometimes makes me, really makes me a better stand-up than watching good stand-up sometimes. Oh, yeah. Because I'm like, I'm, oh, I have, I've always been a very critical person. I'm always, like, watching it. And something in the absence of what I'm watching is more striking to me sometimes than seeing Absolutely. someone who's really, really great. Because I would rather like be like, oh, I could do that better than this person. Not like cribbing jokes or anything, but like, but rather than watching like a really amazing stand-up being like, I'll never be that good. Yeah, <laughs> like, I no, I absolutely understand you. And I have found, I found especially, and I do think that there is a specific kind of Midwesternness and a sort of, like the the phrase, like, don't toot your own horn. Mm-hmm. That was something I used to hear my grandfather say. So the notion of saying, well, first of all, I'm going to get in front of up in front of everybody in a room where all the lights are off except they're all pointing on me and I'm going to stand on a higher level and everyone's going to shut up and listen to me just is against my wiring. So I needed a motivator, especially because when it came to the notion of I'm going to do this for a living. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest motivators is that guy sucks yeah. <laughs> and he makes a living at it. Yeah. Fuck, I can do better than that yeah. guy. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, and that's like, it seems, you know, like that kind of relativism is, I, and I use it for behavior too. You know, just like how to be a better human mm-hmm. being. Most of what I know about how to being a better human being is being around people and going like, oh, fuck, don't do that. Yeah. Like, don't do that. Like, don't make that your goal or don't treat people that way. You know, I, no, I think, I think negative Negative examples can be thrilling, yeah. you know, and really, really useful. What it, now for 
stand-ups just in from a sort of an artistic point of view, like people that are sort of starting out, they want to get into this. Uh, this is pro- this is, I think, under the "what have you learned" kind of question here. What would you say to them? Like, is there something about the actual art of this that you could be helpful? You know, it's stand-up is the weirdest one because it's so nebulous. Like, there's just so many ways to do sure. it well and there are so many and there's just like i hate i actually hate getting prescriptive about like what stand-up is or isn't at the end of the day because especially coming up in new york i was seeing so many different like kinds of like alt comedy uh, that was good and it is so weird because like also stand-up is the feedback is there immediately Mm -hmm. if people are laughing then it works if they're not it doesn't like you don't there isn't much else to do so whenever i have people ask me this sort of question I always say sort of the same thing which is like what I found most helpful for me when I was coming up in New York especially is just find the people that you think are funny mm-hmm. and that, that find you funny and sort of like surround yourself by them and work with them like coming up and it's harder because stand up is sort of more solitary it than is, like yeah. sketch or improv or anything like that but like I just found like the people that I surrounded myself in those early days my class of stand ups pushed me artistically and pushed me to be funnier, but were there to support too. It, the people that you surround yourself with in the beginning are so, so important, yeah. I find. Because I it's so miserable at the, the beginning. Stand-up is also so frustrating because it, there is no, like, people are like, how did you get X? And it's like, truly, the way I got my manager was so, a stand-up is so, like, a roll of the dice of yeah. you have to consistently be killing and killing when the right person is in the room in the right moment when they're going to see it, you know, and it's just like when they're in the right mood. And so it's, it's all such a crapshoot. And so it's so miserable that the people you surround yourself at the beginning are the things that are going to get you to stay and to do it, you yeah. know, keep doing it. I think like the other thing is for me is being always being prepared for when that moment happens. Mm-hmm. Cause like when I had, my first meeting with my manager, he was like, what do you want? And being able to articulate that question is part of being prepared. Also, like, I am always preparing for Had the, you made a, a conscious decision to be ready for that question? Or you yeah, just, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. You just have to be, because you just don't know when it's going to come. And it's it sometimes will come earlier than you need it to be or later than you. I'm always thinking, I'm preparing myself for the career moment five years ahead of where I think I am actually. Like, I'm always moving the goalposts, which is like sort of sometimes can be psychologically frustrating because I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a complete failure because I haven't reached X. And yeah. like, cause I remember for years it was like, all I want is a late night set. All I want is, all I wanted to do is get paid to do stand up. Yeah. And then that happened. And then suddenly it was like, well, that's not good enough. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, you'll never be satisfied. And that's a double edged sword for sure. Yeah. Because I'm always preparing for that next. Cause I remember like he, when I met with my manager, he was like, do you have a sample? And I was like, yeah, I have a sample. I have a, a, a script that I've just written. And like, that's the hardest thing to do is to like do that kind of preparatory work when no one is asking you sure. for it. But and, like, and also to, to have the wherewithal to know ahead of time what they're going to be asking yeah. when you're in that situation, <clears throat> what is that person going to ask you? You know, yeah. th- you know, and so just like, even if you're like, I'm so far away from this X, Y, or Z thing, it's just being able to be prepared for it when it happens. Cause you just know, never know when yeah. it will be dropped into your lap yeah. is I, so important. Yeah. I, I definitely relate to what you're saying, especially if, because what I've always taken from what I've learned in show business is that if you make something, and I, and I learned this 
from early on from Conan O'Brien, who had, I think had really decided at a certain point, he knows himself very well. He's a very ambitious person. He's an amazingly talented person with a gigantic brain. And he decided, I want to be a talk show host. Mm-hmm. I think that he, you know, he was, had been a comedy writer and all this stuff, but he decided he was going to do that. And he was, he, you know, he was a machine that was just be about that. And I think I saw early on, I mean, he may feel different. I feel like I saw him once attaining that, being a little lost in a, in a certain way, like like just sort of personally, uh, you know, I, I, like I say, he might say different, but, and it, it made me feel like, make your goal a process, mm-hmm. like make your, make it be like the best, whatever you're going to be, mm-hmm. or just, and as something you said earlier, you know, be, be open to, because I, you know, in many ways, my career it was very kind of lackadaisical, just kind of getting into like, oh, this looks like fun and this looks like there's opportunity. And then when a door opens, you got to step through yeah. it. You know, you Say just, yes. you can't, yeah, you can't worry and you can't be shy and you can't be. My first agent, I, I was in the Real Life Brady Bunch, which was mm-hmm. a show that was in Chicago, which for people don't know, was just live stagings of the Brady Bunch and it became a huge hit. We were doing it in, in New York at the Village Gate. I was just playing Mike Brady, which is the most boring part. <laughs> but a casting person stuck around after the show, asked to see me, said, I have a friend who's an agent. You should go see her. I went and saw this woman. I don't remember. I don't even remember her last name, Molly something, but just great old Broadway agent, New Yorkie agent, sat across from her desk, talked with her, joked with her for an hour. She got on the phone, started calling casting, New York casting people, but like CBS and ABC, all these people that she knew. And she said at one point, what? No, he's not just a funny kid. He can do everything. He can do everything. And I thought, how do you know? <laughs> and then I realized like, oh, it's all horseshit. Yeah. And it's incumbent upon me to just, it would be rude for me to deny the horseshit. I'm going to go with the horseshit. Because if she says, and I always, I'd felt that way early on in auditions. I would be very intimidated by these established people. And I'd be like, I got to fake it. Yeah. You know, and that's, and that's what you do. You fake it and you just have, there's not a lot of room for, Self-doubt. I yeah. mean, you, and if you do have the self-doubt, keep it to yourself. For you know? sure. So, yeah. I, I wish everybody better at this. Can I say one last thing? Sure, of course you can. very practical. Yes, yes, of course. Is, there's so much about this industry that you can't control. Yeah. So much. But there are so many things you actually can control, including, and I know this is so hypocritical because of how we started our day. Be on time. Mm-hmm. Have your shit memorized yeah. if that's a part of whatever you're doing. Right. And answer your fucking emails. It's not charming to be late. It really right. isn't. Because, and no. this, is the, this is the injustice of it. People will never notice that you're on time. People no. will never, ever, ever notice Mm-mm. if you are on time, if you've answered the email correctly, or if you have the lines memorized. Because yep. that is what you are expected to do. Sure. They will only ever remember if you are chronically late, yes. chronically unprepared. And, and an and asshole. MIA. Yeah, and an asshole. And, an and asshole. be nice. Yeah, that's yeah, the other yeah. thing is like be nice because that's the only thing. And it sucks because it's like it's there's no reward in being on time. No one will ever comment like, oh, this person is so punctual. I mean, the later you get into this industry, it does become more chronic thing. People, people will just show up late. And so it does become almost more like, wow, this person is the only one on time. Yeah. But you want to be that person more than anything else. And yeah. the other thing is like, there are so many factors that you can't control. Like, the people who are assholes and late and unprepared all the time, you have to be astronomically talented. Absolutely. Because 100%. especially now, the way that comedy is so saturated, there are so many of us. Mm-hmm. Any, like... That you are not a, a, a yeah. commodity that is necessary yeah. for anybody in this town. If it, you don't want to work, be an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't want to work, if you don't want to work for a long time and have that make this be your career, be an asshole. You know, be be selfish. 
expect people expect there to be two sets of rules, rules for everybody else and ones for you, because that happens. I know people that work their asshole their way out of this business. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's just not it, like, I think people are like, I, I know so many people who are like, I'm just a mess and that's just who I am. It's my brand. Sorry, I'm 15. And it's like, that's not, no one, no, no. one likes that. No one finds that charming. No, no. <laughs> and even if that's your, even if that's your shtick, that's your milieu, that's for on camera. Yeah. That's for on stage. Uh-huh. But off stage, you got to show up, you know, you got to be there for people. Well, this has been kind of great. And I think we've kind of covered most of everything. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, we've got what you've learned, you yeah. know, I mean, what, I guess kind of more in a personal sense, like, is there something you like, you're obviously a very sort of analytical person. Yeah. And I wonder if like having been through really kind of, you know, like a, a very interesting life with a lot of kind of adversity and denial, you know, people denying you mm-hmm. who you are and what you are. What do you feel like instead of like, how do you be stand up? How do you be a stand up? Like, how do you be happy? Like, do you, like, <laughs> you know, do you have, do you have any kind of like um, thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's strange because, like, I you're catching me on a good day because I am, like, the last couple of weeks, like, been pretty happy. And I usually can't control that. We checked with your manager. <laughs> yeah. Said, yeah. He's on an uptick. Get him in there. I, I think, like, for me, in terms of, like, what I've learned about how to sort of be here and be, like, happy and present or whatever that means to anybody is, like, thinking truly about I am always sort of, like, this is so lame, but it is like golden rule forward. Like I'm always, I like empathy is not something I I necessarily think can be learned, but you can fake it. Mm -hmm. You can sort of like put it there. I'm like uh, an empathetic person almost to my detriment sometimes because I'll like truly like, I've like called back Delta to try and track down a woman who I was rude to once in a moment of oh stress because I felt terrible about the way I treated her and like truly been like, nope, you need to find her. <laughs> oh my goodness. Cause I, I mean, I, it's just like stuff. Like I think like I am so, so much of what I had shame about growing up hurt no one. You know, and so much about like what I'm shamed for now as an adult hurts no one. And it's so hard to sift through all of the shame that we, that is just so like tangible in all of our lives because of the way this country runs Mm -hmm. and the way that, you know, Western society is, any society is, there's different aspects to it, but to be able to sift through that and be like, okay, what is like, what is something that affects someone's life negatively that I have done that I should feel because I don't think shame is universally blanketly bad yeah you know like, oh no oh absolutely um, absolutely not like what is the thing that I did wrong that <laughs> I I should like change what what is the thing that has like affected other people and then what is the stuff that is like completely artificial yeah you know and and it has affected no one else but me and it's right. a choice that i've made and it's bullshit basically yeah, yeah and being able to really think about that is really important because it it was for so long just a blanket over everything that i did and yeah. every thing that i thought and and how i acted and like stand-up my stand-up has been like truly a reaction to that in a lot of ways i mean like it's like a joke how open I am about a lot of things in my life. And mm-hmm. I think people do get the the impression that I'm like 90% transparent about my life on stage and stuff like that. And that's a, a fallacy because I'm not. There's mm-hmm. still a lot of stuff that I don't talk about. But like the stuff that I do choose to be like transparent and open about, like I do think it is like in a reaction to 
the secrecy and the shame and the, all the stuff that was hidden that I wanted to talk about when I was growing up. And I think we're all so much healthier if we do open up about certain stuff. I don't know. Yeah. That's there's a long nothing, for, there's nothing, uh, nothing shameful about humanity. I mean, I, I, you know, I've been going through a divorce mm-hmm. and I've been, and I find sometimes people ask me stuff and I don't, you know, and it's, I don't like, I'm not, bad mouthing anybody in this situation but when i talk about like you know i was the other day i was talking to like some of the electricians on the show about like how much i've been crying lately and i you know and i i could tell they kind of like i don't know maybe a little weirded out by it but i just kind of felt like no i yeah i fucking cry all the time now i've cried more in the last four months than i have in the previous 10 years and that's just like i don't i don't have any shame about that you know that's just well it's crying we all fucking cry what's the big deal and it's it's weirder that we don't talk about it yeah absolutely well you talked about just just get get to the uh where are you going part of this Do you, you said that you've got these miles, you know, goalposts or yeah, you, I mean, would I you want, care to share some of those with us? I want to be, um, I mean, I want to be Phoebe Waller fucking bridge. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I want, basically what I want is I want to be an actor, a producer, and a writer. That's yeah. what I want to I mean, that was always what I was building up to sort of be like, I, I look at like Mindy's career, like the office yeah. was like such a huge formative moment for me is like learning that like, oh, she was a writer on that show yeah. and she was on the show and she created that character and made it something different than yeah. anything you'd seen an Indian American woman sure. be on television prior to that. Yeah, yeah. And so specifically her. Yeah. And like, I remember like researching all of that and figuring literally Mindy Kaling's career is the reason I thought, I could go into like comedy writing. Cause up until then I was like, I'm going to write plays and drama and like be on six feet on, like right on six feet under basically. But the office meanwhile was my favorite show, yeah. but I was like, I can't it's do that. So I'm good. not funny. Yeah. And like truly like reading about the way Mindy like sort of found herself on that show. I was like, Oh, that's what I want to do. And then her own show. And then like, you know, Lena Dunham. I, yeah. I know that like, there's a lot to say about Lena Dunham, but I, I do love that show. And I think she did incredible work it's on it. And absolutely like, to have done, to be an executive producer, star and writer at yes. 24 is insane. I mean, yeah. I think we were all mad at her for good reason. It's uh, like people like that are like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. And I'm not like, I'm so pleased to be on this NBC show. Like, mm-hmm. like unbelievable because again, like the, like it's so weird to be in the offices slot on NBC yeah. and like to have grown up watching the Thursday night must see comedy block, Yeah, you know, like again, like that block raised me as a kid, like, yeah, son, yeah. like everything, friends and Seinfeld, of course, but also like the single guy and Caroline in the city, <laughs> you know, like I watched it all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I'm so pleased to do it, but it is, it does feel weird to be at this huge marquee moment in my life and be like, oh, I don't have, like, I don't have control over, like, I'm just an actor. And I never thought, it was yeah. so, it's so weird to, like, go from wanting, growing up wanting to be an actor yeah. and then, like, real, being like, no, 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 I, I, you sh- a writer is a much more realistic goal. And then that's sort of morphing into this. And then now suddenly, like, it's the weirdness of this industry mm-hmm. is that now I'm, well, wait, I did it. I now have the dream that I had at nine. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it ended up through, like, a pathway of different stuff. So right. it feels weird. But eventually, yeah, I want that. I want to be, like, Greg Berlanti. I want to have, like, a fucking empire. Yeah, yeah. It's auteur. It's being an auteur. Yeah. It's being the author of your own things. And that's something that, like... You know, I'm 52 years old and I, I have, I, that has been an issue for me throughout my career is like, what do I want to say? You know, yeah. and I, I still am not sure, you know, I mean, so it's, it's really the fact that you're 
as young as you are and you're aware of that and you're working hard on it is uh, is very enviable to an old fart like me. Uh, so, you know, keep it up. You got to write about Aunt Pat. That's your story. <laughs> that's that's the show. All right. I'll write about yeah. Aunt Pat. All right. I'll do a whole when I, a whole When episode. I have my own production company, when I'm Greg Berlanti, I'm greenlighting Aunt Pat. <laughs> that's what I'm doing. That's she, the first project I'm picking up. She has, she has Alzheimer's now pretty oh. bad, but she's still, she's like the happiest person in the uh, in the memory away. care ward. Yeah. She, every The nurses fight over who gets to take oh. care of Pat. And the other day I went to visit and she's still funny because I said, uh, I said, so what have you been doing? And she said, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's still, she's still very, very funny. Truly laughed my, my, broke the studio. Um, (laughs) at Pat is a legend and an icon. Yeah. Well, Joel, so are you. This was really, really great. This was really a great conversation. I was really looking forward to this. Yeah. Well, thank you. I was too. And and thank you for sharing so openly and get a wallet. (laughs) He's got his whole stack, his life around with a rubber band, credit card, SAG after card. I, um, I got pickpocketed in Chicago in 2012 during pride and the next day got to my desk uh at groupon and picked up a rubber band and was like i guess i'll use this as a money clip for a while and have not had a wallet since because every time i get like somebody will gift me a wallet or i'll see i'll like try like i'll look at stores at wallets and i'll be like i don't know it just doesn't work as well as this rubber band does so why this is like poor kid like person logic is i'm always like this works and it's free you know (laughs) so why would i do i literally got gifted a fendi wallet and i was like but it can't fit as many cards as i have around this wallet (laughs) so why would i use it like yeah you have well it looks like there's about 10 different cards in that yeah yeah you never know when you might need the sag police pull you over and they're like show us your id I need to see your SAG sure, card. Sure, sure. And uh, you do. It is he, people. He does keep the SAG card. I have my writers, on the outside. I have my writer's guild. That's an accident. They, they, they. No, sort of it's sift. no op, they sort No of accident. I usually have my writer's guild card out on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's got a little more prestige than just an actor. All right, well, Joel, thank you so much, right, and uh, uh, God bless you. I'm not that I believe in God, but I don't know how else to say it. Uh, and uh, good luck, and thank you so much, and thank you out there for listening to the Three Questions with Andy Richter. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It's produced by me, Kevin Bartelt, executive produced by Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Chris Bannon and Colin Anderson at Earwolf. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, associate produced by Jen Samples and Galitza Hayek, and engineered by Will Becton. And if you haven't already, make sure to rate and review The Three Questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at tmobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com.